Good morning. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. We are going to return to verses 28 through 30. When I began this series in these verses five Sundays ago, um, I began with a series of questions. And I want to make that our starting point uh, this morning as we return again to this text. And so, hear these questions as I rhyme them off for you. And as I do, consider where you stand in the midst of these questions. What do we say to the Christian who lost a child in the earthquake in Nepal? What do we say to the Christian who has surrendered multiple internal organs to the surgeon's knife in an attempt to stem the cancer slowly eating away at his body? What do we say to the Christian who feeds and dresses and bathes her once vibrant husband who no longer even remembers her name? What do we say to the Christian who has suffered irreparable physical or mental trauma from an automobile accident? What do we say to the Christian who has limited skills and limited qualifications and therefore very limited opportunities? What do we say to the Christian who raises her two children by herself while paying support to her deadbeat husband because she happens to make more than him? What do we say to the Christian in Syria who lives in fear because a significant segment of the population believes they would be serving God by killing him? Now that is a brief list. And I'm going to hazard the guess that we could all add to that list extensive questions. All of them basically boil down to this. What do we say to the Christian when he suffers? What do we say to the Christian when she suffers? Let's make it even more personal. What do we say to ourselves when we suffer? How do we cope with suffering? What do we do when it feels as though the earth is about to give way? What do we do? We need, I put it to you, we need a deeply rooted theology of suffering. A deeply rooted, embedded theology of suffering. And it is precisely what the Apostle Paul gives us in this chapter. Suffering is his theme, beginning in verse 17. And from the 18th verse to the 30th verse, he gives us, provides, a theology of suffering. 
He points us firstly to the hope of glory. Look at the 18th verse. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He points us secondly to the power of prayer. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he points us, thirdly, to the sovereignty of God. And that brings us to our text. And I encourage you to follow along as I read it for us yet again, starting in the 28th verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, for the past five Sundays, we have focused on verses 29 and 30, what is described by some as the golden chain of salvation. Here, the Apostle Paul speaks of a specific group of people, and he says basically that five, God has done five things for these people. Firstly, he foreknew them. Secondly, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. To be conformed to the image, the likeness of his beloved son. Thirdly, those whom he predestined, he called. He called in time by the Holy Spirit to faith and repentance and union with Christ. Fourthly, those whom he called, he justified. He forgave them their sins. He pardoned them. He was merciful toward them and clothed them with the righteousness, the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. And fifthly, those whom he justified, he glorified. Past tense, because it is an absolute certainty that he will finish the work in, the, in all those in whom he began the work even before the foundations of the world. Now we are ready with those five acts of God firmly in place and firmly before us. We are now ready for what Paul says in verse 28 where he gives one of the most precious promises in all of Scripture, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. There you have it. A promise from God. I want to make four observations. Concerning this promise. Here we go. Observation number one. I want you to notice the object of the promise. The recipients. Those to whom the promise is directed. We find it. We see the object in the opening statement. We know that for those who love God. That has to be our starting point. I have heard this promise applied to all sorts of people. 
But are we really supposed to be so liberal in our application of this promise? I don't think so. As a matter of fact, I know it isn't so. Because Paul just made it explicitly clear. This promise is only for whom? Those who love God. Now, I find that statement simply remarkable. For a number of reasons. The most obvious is this. Given what Paul has said to this point in this epistle. Right? Just hearken back. Just look. Same chapter. Just go back as far as verse 7. And look with me at what Paul says there. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul is making it perfectly clear there. He is simply describing the condition of everyone who is born into this world. We are flesh. Meaning what? We are at enmity with God. Uh, We don't think right thoughts about God. We don't have right desires concerning God. We are in flesh. We we are flesh. We are born in sin. And because of that, consequently, by nature, we are actually hostile toward God. Go all the way back to chapter 3, where he makes it even clearer. Look at what he says in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Twelfth verse. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Eighteenth verse. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is a description of all people in all places at all times. It gives us a very graphic snapshot of what people really think of God. They don't think much of God. As a matter of fact, everyone by nature in the flesh, what we are by nature, is running from God, has turned away from God, again is hostile toward God. But you know, Paul has stated it in even more explicit terms. Go all the way back to the first chapter. And look at what he says in verse 29. Here he is describing humanity. This could be the headline of any newspaper in our day. Verse 29 of chapter 1, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. There you have it, black and white. From the pen of the Apostle Paul himself, a description of the condition of every human being who has ever been born, save one, the Lord Jesus Christ. The condition of every human being on the face of the earth this very day. The natural condition of every individual in this room right now. We are by nature haters of God. That makes for me The statement Paul makes back in chapter 8, verse 28, simply remarkable. We know that for those who love God, who therefore are these people? The answer is obvious. They are those who have been born again. They are those who have experienced 
a miraculous transformation produced by the Holy Spirit, whereby in terms of their minds, the darkness has given way to light. In terms of their hearts, the hardness has given away to a softening. And in terms of their wills, slavery has given way to freedom. And he who was at one time the object of their hatred, hostility, enmity, is now the object of their love, their esteem, their adoration. You see, as a consequence of this new birth, this miraculous transformation, they see God in a light. They see God in a way they never saw him before. And it's simply this, and the Bible testifies to it from cover to cover. They see that God is the chief good. They see that God is the greatest good. Oh, the Bible compares God to that good which is essential. The Bible says he is life. He is light. He is food. He is water. He is rest. The Bible compares God to that good which is beneficial. It says he is home, like a home. He is health, peace, fire, and refuge. The Bible compares God to that good which is delightful. He is wealth. He is honor. He is wine. He is joy. He is pleasure. He is exceedingly, infinitely good. The greatest good, the finest beauty, the surest love. When we are born again by the Holy Spirit, we see God in a whole new light and we esteem him. And because we esteem him, we love him. Have you got it? These people and these alone are the recipients of this promise, the object of this promise. Again, Paul himself states it. We know that for those who love God. The second observation I want to make is this. It concerns the scope of this promise. And we know that for those who love God, there's the object of the promise. Look at what Paul says next. All things work together for good. That is the scope of the promise. To understand it, I want to ask and answer two questions. The first question is this. What does Paul mean by all things? That's a good question. I don't doubt for a moment that by all things, Paul means, I, I don't doubt for a moment that included in that expression is, uh, are all good things, right? Like health is a good thing, no doubt about it. A marriage is a good thing. Kids, good thing. Job security, good thing. Stability, peace, good thing. Friends, good thing. I, okay, I don't doubt for a moment that all of those good things are included in that. That God works prosperity, blessing, good, for our good. But it's not actually what Paul really means. It isn't really what he has in view. 
He has already set the context all the way back in verse 17. Look again at what he says there. If we are children, then we are heirs, right? If we are adopted children, we're heirs. We are heirs of God. So we're going to inherit the boundless and blessed God someday. We are going to inherit a renewed, redeemed, renovated cosmos in which righteousness will dwell, we are going to inherit a renewed and renovated soul and body. We are adopted children, therefore we are heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Now notice the provision, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. He repeats it in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time. He has not lost sight of this theme which he has introduced back in verses 17 and 18. When he comes now to verse 28 and utters this statement, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. He is still primarily thinking in terms of what? Your suffering, your pain, your sorrow, your anguish, your persecution, your rejection, your cancer, your divorce, anything else we have been through, things which in and of themselves we might label bad, things that we would rather escape, things that perhaps we would rather undo, things that perhaps most certainly we would rather change. All those things that in one measure or another are the cause of suffering in our lives, Paul now is very inclusive in gathering all these things together, the scope of this promise, and uttering what? That all these things, all of them, Work together, cohesiveness, for what? For good. Now that brings us to the second obvious question, which is what? What is good? And here is where 99.9% .9 of us go wrong. Maybe 100% of us go wrong, but I don't want to assume there's a point one out there somewhere. But speaking for myself, here is where I often go wrong. And again, I'm hazarding to guess that most of us go wrong. Why? Because we err, fundamentally err, in our definition of good. Why? Listen to this. We define good according to what we want instead of what we need. We do it all the time. We define good I define good according to what I want, not what I need. We define good according to what makes us happy instead of what makes us holy. Hmm. We define good according to what's visible, what we can see, instead of what is invisible. The realm of the spiritual. We define good according to what is temporal, the here and now, right now, instead of what is everlasting, eternal. We define good according to the interest of the flesh rather than the welfare of the soul. 
Can you take one more? I'm going to give you one more. Here it is. We define good as the enjoyment of earthly comforts instead of the improvement of heavenly graces. I'll repeat that one because it encapsulates them all. We define good as the enjoyment of earthly comforts instead of the improvement of heavenly graces. And so consequently, this is where many of us, most of us, all of us, we get ourselves into trouble. Okay? I'm among friends, right? So I can say this. This is where we get ourselves into a heap of trouble. Why? Well, you see, if, if I, I'll speak personally. If I fail to esteem holiness, right? If I fail to esteem holiness, if I fail to esteem blessedness as biblically defined, and if I fail to esteem eternal realities, are you with me? I will resent whatever means lead to those things. Okay? It's tricky. If I fail to esteem holiness, what it is worth in the eyes of God. If I fail to really esteem, value, get it, what is true joy, true delight, true blessedness. If I have little grasp or appreciation for eternal realities, then whatever God brings into my life that is actually designed to lead to those things, I will resent whatever he brings into my life because I have no value nor appreciation for what it is he aims to do with me. And so the things in and of themselves, the suffering, it is painful. It is bad. And if we have the means to escape these things, we should. Within the confines of God's revealed will in his word, we should. These things are bad. They are not good in and of themselves. But the reality is this. The promise is this. God promises what? That all these things, he will work all these things together for our good. And so when we can understand what this good really is, we can embrace suffering even in the midst of the sorrow and we can escape. We can avoid that temptation which knocks on the door, that temptation to fall into what? Despair. The temptation to succumb to what? Despondency. The temptation to give into what? What has become an acceptable sin in our days? Self-pity. Self-pity. These are sins, folks. Self-pity. Despair. And they arise when? When the sorrow, which is legitimate, the sorrow, which is normal, the sorrow which is natural as we experience suffering, when we have lost sight of ultimate realities, we have little value for holiness, little value for blessedness, little value for eternity, and therefore we deeply resent the means, suffering, which God is using to bring about those things, and therefore we slip into sin. I will say it again. It is sin. It is sin that must be repented of, that despair 
and despondency. We're navel-gazing and self-pity. When in actual fact, we have lost sight of the good. So what is it exactly? The good. We know because we were very meticulous and laborious in our study of verses 29 and 30. There it is defined for us in the 29th verse. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. This is his purpose for his people. Unshakable, unwavering, unchanging. What is it? Not to make sure you live life in a bed of roses here and now. Not to give you everything you want. Not to make sure your life is free of stress and loss and pain and bereavement. No, 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 no. He predestined us to what? To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is what he is doing right now. That is the good in view right now. The psalmist declares it is good. There's the word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The affliction in and of itself, please don't mistake what I'm saying, misunderstand what I'm saying. He does not say the affliction in itself is good. It's not what we're saying. We're not saying for one moment the suffering in and of itself is good. No, it's bad. It's what God does with it that's good. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes, that you might produce in me even an inkling, a glimmer of Christ-likeness, that you might produce in me that same self-control, that same patience, that same selflessness, that same kindness and gentleness and meekness and love, that all of these things as you chip away at me might progressively, however feeble at times, and shadowed by the remaining flesh, but nevertheless there might be made evident to others some semblance between me and the Lord Jesus, adopted children, the heirs, and the heir, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of this is leading to and will culminate in what? That day yet future when that change and transformation will be perfected. It is exactly, it is exactly what Paul meant back in verse 17. If children, then heirs. Yes, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him. In order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, Christ's glorification was preceded by what? His suffering. And I dare say, the depth of his suffering heightened and heightens the magnitude of his glory. And the same is true of us. Listen carefully to these words. Listen carefully. Out of 2 Corinthians 4.16, this slight momentary affliction is preparing. Did you catch that? 
This slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I think we often miss this. There is a correspondence between the depth of suffering now and the height of glory then. Persecution is preparing us for peace beyond all comparison. Sorrow is preparing us for joy beyond all comparison. Rejection is preparing us for acceptance beyond all comparison. Loneliness is preparing us for love beyond all comparison. Brokenness is preparing us for wholeness, completeness beyond all comparison. Pain is preparing us for pleasure beyond all comparison. Frustration is preparing us for satisfaction beyond all comparison. Confusion is preparing us for clarity beyond all comparison. Despair is preparing us for delight beyond all comparison. Let me repeat it. There is direct correspondence between the depth of suffering now and the height of glory then. This slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Did you get all of that? Because that is the good Paul is talking about. We know the object of this promise. We know that for those who love God, we're now comfortable with the scope of this promise. All things work together for good. And now thirdly, the third observation I want to make is this. Notice the certainty of this promise. The remainder of the 28th verse. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those who are called according to his purpose. One more time. Maybe you don't need it, but I do. For those who are called according To his purpose. What does that mean? Well, that's why we went through verses 29 and 30 with a fine-tooth comb. In the 29th and 30th verses, in those five works, acts of God, those whom he foreknew, he predestined, those whom he predestined, he called, those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he glorified. Paul explains precisely what he means by that last statement in verse 28. Those who are called according to his purpose. Absolute certainty. That all things work together for their good. Why? Let me make three statements. Here's number one. The object of God's purpose is his people. The object of his purpose is his people. This is not some generic. 
loosey-goosey, wishy-washy promise that God just sort of throws out there for us to put on the coffee mug or put on the fridge and just kind of apply frivolously to anyone. This is a promise given exclusively to the people of God. Again, the words of the Lord Jesus, I know my own. You go back, please, if you struggle with this, go back and read John chapter 6. Go back and read John chapter 10. Go back and read John chapter 15. Go back, please, and read John chapter 17. And as you read these chapters, you will discover that as the Lord Jesus embarked on his public ministry, he always had a very specific group of people in view, his own those whom the Father had given to him. They are the object of this purpose. The second statement is this. Notice the motive for God's purpose. It is his gracious choice. His love is not dependent upon anything in his people. His love is not contingent upon them fulfilling any condition. This love, this covenantal love is unconditional because it is a love in which he chose them back before creation, back before the foundation of the world when he first foreknew them. Third statement is this. The assurance of God's purpose is his incomparable power and faithfulness. And so let me repeat it. As I get into verses 29 and 30, oh boy, I see a lot there. But these two are right at the top of the list. There in that golden chain, I see, I find my security as a Christian. My security rests in this unbreakable chain. My security rests in the work of God who foreknew me, predestined me, called me, justified and glorified me. And equally true. My adversity rests in that golden chain. Why? Because I know that absolutely everything that comes into my life, good or bad, in the context, Paul is thinking primarily of bad. Whatever comes into my life, I have this absolute certainty, absolute certainty that everything is submissive to And everything contributes to what? God's purpose for me. That there is nothing that catches him by surprise. There is nothing that can break this chain. There is nothing that can alter or challenge his plans for me. But that even suffering itself is subservient to God's plan of redemption, salvation for me. Here's how one preacher put it. Once you walk through the door of love into the massive, unshakable structure of verse 28, everything changes. There come into your life stability and depth and freedom. You can't be blown over anymore. The confidence that a sovereign God governs for your good all the pain and pleasure that you will ever experience is an incomparable refuge 
and security and hope and power in your life. See, when you're not talking, when we get into the doctrines of election, predestination, effectual calling, all of these things, we are not talking about abstract theological concepts. We are speaking of a daily source of assurance. I hate it when people say doctrine isn't very practical. Shame on you if you think that. Doctrine is extremely practical. As a matter of fact, you can't have any practice without doctrine. This is as practical as it gets. These are not abstract theological concepts, although they do require and demand a lot of cognitive understanding and exercise and discipline and study on our part and mulling over them and meditating upon them. But these are truths which are to embrace the heart and become wonderfully pastoral, a daily source of assurance, the absolute certainty of this promise. Fourth observation I want to make is this. It's not specifically in this verse, but in the text, the chapter in its entirety. I want us to notice the fruit of this promise. The fruit of this promise. Let me just say it. It is summed up wonderfully back there in verse 18. I mean, I think that the predominant fruit of this promise is perspective. It gives us perspective. And that's what Paul hints at back in verse 18. I consider... I consider that the sufferings of this present time, so what's going on in my life right now, however unpleasant, not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see, he has perspective. He has a grasp on reality because he has an eternal, a spiritual perspective of things. He understands clearly what the good is that is in view. And he understands clearly that golden chain of salvation and how all things in life are subservient to God's plan of salvation, what he is doing in us. And therefore, as he considers the two, sufferings and glory, he concludes what? I can't even begin to compare my present suffering. And Paul suffered a great deal. I cannot even begin to compare my present suffering with future glory. That is perspective. Perspective. Do you remember Jacob? Jacob had a hard life. He was forced to flee from his father's home. He was humiliated in his uncle's home. He was cheated of the woman he loved. He was forced to flee from his uncle's home. He was grieved by the death of his wife, Rachel. He was grieved at the rape of his daughter, Dinah. He was troubled by the murderous ways of his sons, Simeon and Levi. He was troubled by the licentious ways of his son Judah. He was robbed of his beloved son Joseph. I dare say Jacob started to get it right toward the end of his life. But in the midst of all of this, how did he view it all? What was his perspective? His words out of Genesis 42. All these things are against me. That was his perspective. All these things are against me. Me. Joseph had a hard life. He was resented and hated by his brothers. He was stripped of his clothes and tossed into a pit. He was ignored as he pleaded with his brothers, treated as a mere slave, sold into slavery in Egypt, sold as a piece of merchandise. He was hounded by a licentious woman. He was wrongfully accused and imprisoned. And as he stood before his brothers and reflected upon it all in Genesis 50, what was his perspective? What was his view? What was his declaration, his assessment? 
God meant it for good. Two very different men, Jacob and Joseph. Very similar lives in terms of the adversity and the affliction and the suffering. Two very different perspectives which have echoed throughout the centuries these cries. All this has come against me. God meant it for good. How do we account for the difference in these perspectives? Our understanding of this promise in verse 28. That for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Let me add to that, that when this perspective is in place, when we're seeing things as we really should, for fruit, quickly, number one, it will instill joy and gratitude. The things are not good in themselves. Let me repeat it. What God is doing in and through these things is good. That gives joy in the midst of the sorrow. It instills joy and gratitude. Secondly, it inspires awe and wonder. God is governing everything. Psalm 115 verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Thirdly, it produces faithfulness and holiness. When I see what God is doing, the end in view and I grasp how he is a bringing about and accomplishing it. It creates in me a desire, knowing his purpose for me, it creates in me a desire to do what? To pursue that which is good in his sight. To be faithful in my pursuit of holiness. Fourth fruit is this, perspective. It removes fear and worry. I can rest. I can be still. Despite the pain and the sorrow and the suffering, I can be certain, Proverbs 16, that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The roll of the dice, to modernize it. The roll of the dice. Every roll is, the decision, is a decision from the Lord. His providence extends to everything. Nothing escapes his rule of all things for the good of his people. And this removes every last res residual of fear and worry. Let me conclude with this stanza out of a well-known hymn. Hear these words, I pray. The work which his goodness began... The arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen. And never was forfeited yet. Things future nor things that are now. Nor all things below or above. Can make him his purpose forego. Or sever my soul from his love. Our Heavenly Father, as your children, we praise your great and mighty name this day and praise you for that eternal love which you have bestowed upon us, chosen in grace before the foundation of the world. We praise you for the expression of your love for us at Calvary's cross where the Lord Jesus poured out his blood to redeem us. And we praise you for the effect, the fruit of your love 
When you poured out the Holy Spirit upon our hearts, causing us to be born again, causing us to cry out, Abba, Father. We praise you, our triune God, for your love for us, your people, and inviting us, encouraging us, bringing us into the fellowship of the Godhead, whereby we enjoy your eternal love. And we have this unshakable conviction that nothing can sever us from your grace and your mercy toward us. Give us eyes to see this day, ears to hear, and hearts to apply. And we ask it for the furtherance of your kingdom among us. In Christ's name, amen.